You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So it's always good to get a longer-term perspective on a market, which is what we're doing today. This time around, it's the art market. Back with us is Jacob Popst. He is CEO at Artnet. It's an art database that tracks sales in the secondary market. He joins us to talk about the firm's intelligent report, which looks at changes in the art market over the past three decades. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back. Well, thank you. It's nice Good to, to be here. Kind of wrap up our day. It's been chock full of news. Tell us a little bit about the art market, because Jason and I spend a lot of time, I feel like, talking about alternative assets, and certainly the art market is part of it. What are you seeing in terms of a longer perspective about what's been going on there, and in terms of valuations and and trends? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, in, in our report, we're looking back at at thirty years in the market, and that's um, actually the time when we started the company. And the market has completely changed since then. I think, um, you know, now we're at over 60 billion uh, in, in total art sold per year. And back in the day, it was one, one sixth of that. So the market has grown a lot. Um, we have given the market transparency. We've introduced, you know, the art database, um, as we have discussed last time also, and, um, and given the market access to price. And that helped, you know, the market grow. How has that transparency changed the market, though? Um, yeah, well, you have to you have to imagine you know someone wanting to buy a piece of art in 1989, and you know he had to rely on you know the people selling selling it to him or you know on friends and <laughs> can I trust them? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's 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 been very very complicated, and and you had actually people profiting from from that uh, intransparency, you know, right. and yeah, and so you know giving people access to data is is, is essential, you know, for any market to grow. And so when you think about, especially over the last 30 years, it's safe to say the contemporary art world has radically changed. The values placed on contemporary artists, which I, I they, born post 45, 1945, is that how you uh, sort of, how do you define the contemporary art market? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's yeah, okay. you have that very right. And it's, 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 a, it's a very good point. Um, you know, the, the contemporary market has totally exploded. And, um, and, and it's been driving the entire market a little bit in, in the last 30 years. And, you know, in, in 1989, um, auction houses didn't even sell contemporary art yeah. that much. That, that was what, what galleries did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they only recently um, started doing that. And, you know, that has really completely transformed the market. And why, why was that? I mean, what, what accounts for that change? Because I think when you say it, it's obvious. And mm -hmm. yet the catalyst is not obvious. What, what was it? Well, you know, traditionally galleries are, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of their job to discover artists and, you know, and to manage their careers and, and, and to make sure that they become popular. And, you know, auction houses, you know, typically come in once, once you know, they have a market. Right. And, you know, and uh, the contemporary market is the market that really has a lot of potential. And, you know, where you see tremendous growth rates and, you know, and, and, and that's why the auction houses, of course, are interested in it. When it comes to growth, if you look around the world, I mean, I'm assuming it follows the trends where there's wealth creation. Because I think about how um, the Asian countries and the Asian markets have become much more involved in the art markets. I think about China, right? We do stories day in and day out about, you know, millionaires and billionaires being minted over in China as that economy has become much more of a capitalistic and, and developed economy. So I'm curious what you've seen in terms of who are the buyers, where the market, the art market in particular, is really seeing um, some significant growth. 
Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a good question. Um, the U.S. is the market leader, has always been number Still. one. Yes. Um, China is number two. Um, th uh, third is, is the U.K. And together they make um, around 70% of the total market. And uh, yeah, and China particularly was very, very, has been very, very interesting. You know, we've seen a lot of growth until about 2014. And, you know, and since then, a little bit of decline, you know, when, the, the, you know, the, the, the government cracked down on corruption. Right. So the middle, the middle market has uh, disappeared a little bit. But, you know, in the, in the top segment, we, we even in China still see a lot of uh, demand. What's also interesting is that China is more and more interested in Western art. Traditionally, and five years ago even, you know, Chinese wouldn't, wouldn't even be interested in best on hmm. like what side. like what are they buying like you know is it um contemporary a hockney is it a pollock what is it that they want you mean today yeah um yeah like the, 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 the big the big names yeah warhol hockney and 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 so on yeah and what about demographically i mean is this a market especially as technology gets introduced you're able to see online catalogs and whatnot you don't have to show up at the auction house necessarily are you seeing the demographics change we've got a lot of wealth that's created say out in silicon valley by the tech bubble what what are the sort of contours of who's buying the art yeah, um, I think that a lot of the same people are, are buying the art. You know, we um, you know we have a very strong core of people who are very interested in art and who regularly buy, and that's always stayed the same. But outside of that, the market has grown a little bit, and you see, you know, of course, Silicon Valley is is one example, and you know, and then other other countries, China, Russia, and and so on. I have to say, this art report it's really comprehensive. I think it's like something over fifty pages here. But what's fascinating is I think when you kind of get into you know who are today's most bankable artists and you know is it still in the art market where you want to find I remember talking with Eli Broad about this you know and his team that you know he really went after some artists that weren't necessarily well known but bought a lot of the art and they eventually became really well known and, I, and I'm just wondering what's the strategy are people are art collectors still looking for that unknown trying to get in on their work early or is it that in terms of you want to go after those reliable bankable artists that's where they want to invest well it's 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 both but you know what I find very interesting is uh, you know looking for artists that are not really uh, famous yet and and discovering them and you know and 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 you know and, and taking a bet on that that's that's I think what what is an, an interesting still yeah, still. yeah still. of course all the time anytime yeah all right Jacob Pops is chief executive officer of Artnet they have just released their 30th anniversary intelligence report looking back looking forward and a lot has changed uh, in the art world for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about the story in the magazine recently. We profiled an artist uh, and her story. Um, it's fascinating. It's photographs, it's drawings, um, uh, but it's also a supply-demand thing. Right. She doesn't put out a lot of work. Uh, she's been known, and I, forgive me, I forget her name and I'll try and tweet it out, but it's just uh, interesting to see some of the uh, dynamic. It's not easy being green. So it's Having been to spend a each day really great week this week because all week we've been featuring stories, reporters and guests on climate change as part of our participation in the Covering Climate Now initiatives. It's a, a global collaboration of more than 220 news outlets to uh, highlight climate change and it's led by the Columbia Journalism School. So with us, having said that, uh, Garvin J. Bush is back with us. He's co-founder, chief investment officer of Green Alpha Advisors based in Boulder, Colorado, uh, returning to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker 
Broker Studio. So we have been talking about climate change. And one of the interesting stories I thought was when we talked about uh, renewables and how it's really become a viable industry, whereas 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe it was kind of a cool thing. It sounded like a nice thing to do, but people were not all in. And financially, it didn't quite make sense. That's not the case anymore. Yeah, that's extremely true, Carol. The, the rise of renewables and the plummeting of the cost of renewables has been dramatic just in the last 10 years. You know, you said 20, but it's really been even more recent than that. And, yeah. it's, and it's all about scale, right? Rights law and a different version of Moore's law in the case of, of silicon uh, PV, uh, photovoltaic panels, means that every time there's a doubling of deployment, the cost comes down about 30%. And so there's been enough doublings in the last 10 years that now, you know, the cheapest power purchase agreement that utilities are signing with solar is under two pennies a kilowatt hour. You know, this comes up against natural gas at five pennies and coal at five to 10. So it's extremely economically That's competitive. amazing math right there. Yeah. Wow. No, and it's, and it's why it makes a fantastic forward investment because if you're right. a utility, what do you want to buy? Two penny power or five penny power? Because you get to keep the difference because what you can charge your ratepayers is mandated by law. Right. And so you were testifying uh, just recently uh, down in Washington, the House Select Committee on the climate crisis. And it does feel like, and this goes to your exact point a minute ago, we seem to be at a moment where people are starting to take notice a little bit. And it's not just because of uh, initiatives like we're talking about this week, but lawmakers starting to get more serious about it. It's not just celebrities being like, hey, save the earth, it's cool, we don't want it to disappear. Um, Why is that? Because the risks are now so much more apparent. You know, we were talking about how fast uh, renewable energy economics have changed in the last 10 years. Well, so too have the risks associated yeah. with the climate crisis. They're so much more evident now that people really are taking notice. That's, that's part one. And part two is the younger generation that are really going to have to live through the worst outcomes of the climate crisis are becoming politically aware. And so they are starting to make a lot of noise. Well, and you know, I even think about this. It's interesting you said it because I think about this from a consumer perspective. We just had an author on a couple of weeks ago. Last week, I believe it was, new book out uh, called Fashionopolis that's right. really about consumption and production and manufacturing and consumers especially younger consumers seem to be voting with their feet that that feels like an investable theme there right yeah no question Uh, between a lot of the sustainability topics are very investable right now it isn't you know like carol like you were saying with renewable energy it's a super viable investment right now not because it's green or green or warm and fuzzy but because it makes economic sense right all across follow the money essentially right and it drives but okay so having said that i'm just thinking if i'm running a business and i'm looking at cutting my costs right Mm -hmm. to improve my you know profit structure that if i see that difference between nat gas versus solar why isn't everybody ramping up or is it just a case it's not as viable maybe in the northeast as it is in the southeast like what's tell me the dynamics there as we look at our country and maybe the world handful of things going on there but yeah one is just the geography some places it's windier than others some places it's sunnier than others in the sunniest places solar makes the most sense economically not just in terms of how well it works although those things go together yeah uh same could be said for wind now the other part though is that there is political structure there are some places where the local government doesn't want to see it coming and so they put up barriers to prevent it so even Historically, I understand with the wind, like the pushback because they don't want them, you know, you know, off of Martha's Vineyard or what have. But solar, the same reason. 
Yep, sometimes it's nimbyism like that. They just don't want to be able to see the solar panels out, out their window. And other times it's a little bit more ideological. You know, uh, maybe it's an older generation that grew up uh, with the fossil-powered utility and they just think that's how the world should be and so they sort of will put up regulatory barriers to, bro to block it. What about lobbying in terms of political by the energy space? And that, of course, is a, is a big factor because the fossil energy space still has more money and more political clout than the renewable energy space. Right, and forgive me. To, I mean, everybody's lobbying, but fossil right. versus, yeah. So uh, speaking of politics, tell us about your experience testifying. <laughs> what were the questions like? What was the tone? What was your takeaway? You know, first of all, I want to compliment Kathy Castor, uh, the congresswoman from Tampa, who is the chair of that committee, the, the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Uh, I thought it was interesting that she wanted to invite an asset manager to testify before the climate crisis. It shows that she's perceptive. You know, investing where capital is deployed is where the economy flows from. Yeah. Where you invest is where stuff happens. And she correctly perceives that if you can fix investing, you can fix the economy and maybe solve the climate crisis. Right. And so that's what I told them. You know, they, they, to answer your question directly, they asked me, what's the biggest risk coming from your industry? And I said, from the investment management industry, the biggest risk related to the climate crisis is that by and large, my industry is ignoring it. But right. I also think, you know, it would be interesting to look at the portfolios of various lawmakers too, to see how many have mm. exposure to fossil energy yeah. companies at this point. Yeah. My guess is they all do. Yeah. And that's the problem because it's just so endemic to simply buy an index fund and forget it. You know, the S&P 500 has 60 fossil fuels companies. Correct. In it. And if I'm thinking like a fiduciary, I don't want to own the causes of the climate crisis because those are going to be dramatically, like Mark Carney says, there's going to be a Minsky moment for yep. the carbon-facing economy. Agreed. And they're going to be dramatically repriced at some point. You don't want to be in front of that. So fun to talk with you. Thank you so much. Garvin, great to see you. Garvin J. Bush, he's co-founder, chief investment officer over at Green Alpha Advisors, based in Boulder, Colorado, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio on this Thursday. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio.